Live from Lemert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiling. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app and take us with you anywhere in the world, literally. And listen to us in real time, but only if you download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program every day and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour. and will be a Grammy-nominated duo Black Violin join us for a conversation about defying the stereotypes of black people and black musicians through their unique artistry, as you can hear right now. If you've never heard of Black Violin, you're in for a treat today. But we get to hour two with Kev Marcus and will be of the Grammy-nominated duo Black Violin. The third hour today remains the domain of the motivator, Les Brown, who continues his month-long radio residency. You've got to be hungry, exclusively here on KBLA Talk 1580. But in this first hour today, a Black History Month conversation about the power of black joy as an act of resistance Indeed, I would say radical resistance with Dr. Frederick Ingram, Jr. Dr. Ingram, how are you today, sir? I'm well. How are you this morning? Man, if I complain, I'd be an ingrate. I'm glad to have you on and uh, glad we've got the hour. A lot to unpack. Let me jump right in and make the most of our time in this first hour today. Um, situate for me, Dr. Ingram, if you will, this notion of black joy. It's a phrase we've been hearing a lot lately and people are putting it on T-shirts and hats and everywhere you look, you see at least two things I notice everywhere I go, black joy, black magic. So this notion of black joy um, has been introduced or reintroduced uh, to uh, to those of us in the demos in interesting ways, again, over the last couple of years or so. But how would you situate, how would you situate this notion of black joy historically, uh, given the black experience in America, since we're talking, obviously, during Black History Month? Absolutely. So I think what we look at or consider black joy and, and what black joy means we have to contextualize the black experience in america and more specifically how we have not been allowed to experience black joy we have not been allowed to you know experience grief we have not been allowed to experience mourning we have not been allowed to effectively live 
um, our lives free of the white gaze. And so, you know, of those conditions, we, we constantly have, you know, white people controlling, socially controlling how we experience any of these things. And so when we look at Black Joy as an act of radical resistance, as you mentioned, we look at it from a perspective of taking back aspects of our experience that no one can give us, right, but also that we can't allow people to take away. For me, when I think about Black Joy, I often look at it from the perspective of, uh, the intentionality of your lived experience. There's so many elements of our lives that we don't get to control because of white supremacy and aspects of whiteness and the white gaze. But one thing you can control is how you experience joy, what that looks like for you, how you go about um, being uh, an advocator of radical blackness, right, and radical black joy in ways that um, make you feel fulfilled and ha- allow you to be able to step in and help others feel fulfilled as well. Yep. When, when you say um, radical black joy, and I, I was in a conversation the other day with some people and they uh, were asking me, I was at a, at, a, at a restaurant and some folk walked up and told me much they loved the program, loved the show, and you know, gr- great people, nice conversation. Uh, and they asked me if I, had a, if I had a second. I said, sure, I put down my fork. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and they wanted me to really unpack for them this notion of, of the word radical and why it is that in certain spaces and in certain phrases, we use the word radical. We talk about the radical king. We talk about radical love. Here we are now talking about radical joy, radical black joy. So when we say radical black joy, you're the professor here. By that, you mean expressly and precisely what? So it means to be disruptive, right? It means that, you know, when we look at most of our experience and most of our life, everything has to be uh accepted by or through the permissions of whiteness. And so we are choosing to be radical. We are saying that we don't need approval from white people, from the white gays, that we don't need their permission to allow us to experience anything, to participate in anything. I also use radical when I talk about rest as well, because, you know, for black people, rest has always been a luxury of ours. We have never been given an opportunity to actually sit and be still since we were stolen to this to this um, social experiment of a country, right? So we we often have to be intentional about the things that we do to be in direct opposition and a disruption to status quo. And so when we think about uh, black black joy or rest as a way of being radical, what we're saying is that this is something that we are choosing for ourselves without the permissions of whiteness. Yeah. Um- I love that phrase, without the permission of whiteness, without the permission of others. I want to come back and interrogate that in a moment. I also want to interrogate this notion of being intentional. Um, and um, mm-hmm. we're going to unpack that as we move forward in this hour. Uh, and this notion of um, of, uh, of reclaiming um, black joy. Uh, I was thinking, as you were talking a moment ago, uh, Dr. Ingram, about uh, an old traditional black gospel song that we used to sing in my little Pentecostal church when I grew up. Uh, You may have heard it. The song says, this joy I have, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. Uh, If that is true, if 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 the the, if the joy that we have, the world didn't give and the world can't take it away, that completely changes this conversation. Uh, We'll talk about it as we move forward. Dr. Frederick Ingram, Jr. on KBLA Talk 
Smiley, when we come forward, interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Dr. Frederick Ingram Jr. on KBLA Talk 1580. He's an assistant professor in the Center for Integrative Studies and in Social Science at Michigan State University, uh, author of a book called Black Liberation Through Action and Resistance. Uh, move uh, will be released later this year. Delighted to have him in conversation this hour as we uh, tee up this Black History Month conversation. We've been doing some things uh, a little bit different uh, in this month, trying to bring you some conversations that we can root in uh, the experiences, the history of black people and figure out how we can uh, best or better navigate forward uh, courtesy of these conversations with all kinds of uh, scholars and intellectuals and folk who I, who, who I believe have a usable intellect, as I would put it, uh, Dr. Ingram Jr. is uh, is one of those persons. So I was saying a moment ago, and we played that old track. I, I'm, I'm glad Miles put that up, an old track from Shirley Caesar. Uh, this joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. You go through the verses, this love I have, the world didn't give it to me. It's an old standard, as you probably know. Uh, but this notion of, of the joy that we have not coming from the world in which we occupy, not coming from the world in which we have to navigate complexities of systemic racism and oppression and resistance. Um, so I guess the question uh, to, to, to advance this conversation, Dr. Ingram, is whether or not the joy that we have is from within or from without. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that it's, it's within. Um, joy is definitely a personal thing, and black joy is, is love of self. One of the things that, that I often talk about is particularly for African-Americans and how we understand our relationship to whiteness and our relationship to white supremacy is that many of us don't understand it. Mm -hmm. Most of us um, don't really have the foundational understanding of what white supremacy is and, and how that has directly impacted our everyday experience. And some of us avoid that uh, because whatever reason we were told not to give too much power to it and all those other things. But I think there's a difference in, in giving power to whiteness and not understanding whiteness. Right. And I think many of us don't have a foundational understanding of it. So we don't understand the distractions and the things that make us feel or believe that the joys of our own are joys that are given to us by other people. And you can take that from, you know, how we experience life or how we experience love and romance. A lot of people, navigate love and, and dating from the perspective of like they want somebody to bring them joy right don't somebody to bring them this this experience without understanding that that's a personal experience only you can bring yourself now you can allow someone not to to steal your peace right but you can't expect someone to bring you joy mm-hmm. um and the distinction between that that's a powerful phrase um the distinction that you're making now between uh, peace and joy being stolen or not. That distinction is what? Unpack that for me a bit more. Yeah. So I think when you talk about, when you talk about peace, right? Like mm-hmm. when we bring people in who are chaotic individuals into your life, I look at whiteness as a chaotic individual, as a, as a chaotic experience, right? And those are things that can, can knock you off of your journey if you allow it to. It can distract you. Um, the, the purpose has always been this divide and conquer um, strategy, right? To make us stop focusing on what our, our, end goal is and mm-hmm. to get into the weeds of all of this other stuff. And so that is, that is the chaos. And that is the thing that, um, that you allow in. Right. But those things still don't have any impact on how we experience joy. And if we talk about that further, if you think about black people, 
what what do we generally do? Like if we get chased by a dog, you in the hood, and you get chased by a Rottweiler, and you survive <laughs> that with you and your friends, right? or you and your siblings, like yeah. you are you are terrified what has happened. But the moment it's done, it's the first thing we do, we all laugh, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about how we we talk about how our cousin almost fell, how the how the dog was on his heels, how you jump on the roof of somebody's car, whatever <laughs> it took to get away, right? <laughs> and we and we. And we kill ourselves laughing because that is something that only, that's something very uniquely black. Because when we didn't have anything else, we had those moments to find laughter. We had those moments to find joy, right? We had those moments to share in those experiences uniquely, you know, uh, among ourselves. But there are other aspects, the stressors and things like that, that, that cause you to feel that that is something uh, that is a responsibility of someone else, something external to your own self. Yeah, I'm I'm laughing, uh, Doctor Ingram, because uh, I'm sure he's listening right now. I have, I have, I have I'm one of ten kids. I have nine brothers and sisters. I have a brother named Doobie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call him Doobie. His real name is Derwin. And he's probably listening right now back mm-hmm. in Indiana, where I grew up. <laughs> and I'm laughing because to this very day, when my family gets together, we start telling old tales. The story of Doobie being chased by the dog one day <laughs> is it's, it's family lore. My brother, my brother's being chased by a dog one day, and it just it just disrupted his life. And for years, whenever he was around a dog, he would jump on a chair. I mean, he just could not stand being around dogs because he was chased and bitten by this dog. It just traumatized my baby brother for years. I mean, for decades, he was traumatized. When I go home now to visit him, I have to fight with his big dog to get inside his house. So it, it eventually turned, but it was decades where he finally got over being afraid to be around dogs. Because of being chased yeah. that day and bitten by this dog. So I, I, I was laughing because every one of us has a family story, to your point. Absolutely. About somebody being chased by a dog and being traumatized by it for years to come. But then, as I said, Doobie finally got over it and uh, is, is, happily is uh, <laughs> has a dog living uh, in his home with he and his, uh, and his precious family. Um, let me get back to this notion of peace, though, that you, that you raised a moment ago. Because it occurs to me uh, to ask whether or not there is a period in our history where black people have ever, I mean, I want people just to wrestle with this just for a second, just kind of marinate on this for a moment. I don't know that there's, there's ever been a moment since we arrived uh, against our will on these shores. My Angelo said that you used the word stolen. Maya put it this way. We were stolen, bought, and sold into slavery, arriving mm-hmm. on a nightmare, praying for a dream. I love that line mm-hmm. from a poem on the pulse of morning delivered at the President Clinton's inauguration many years ago, that we were stolen, bought, and sold into slavery, arriving on a nightmare, praying for a dream. It occurs to me um, that, to my mind at least, uh, but you're the expert here, there has never been a moment in our history in this country called America that we have ever experienced true peace. We know we know we know what black love feels like. We can talk about black love mm-hmm. and, and, and black joy and black magic. Mm-hmm. But it occurs to me in this conversation now, I don't know that we could actually talk about black peace because that seems yeah. to be uh, it seems to me that 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 peace and black folk are like two strangers who have yet to meet. But that's my take. What's your read Absolutely. on that? Like two ships passing in the night. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right, because when we look at our experience, particularly here, you have to look at the condition of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but the reality of it is is that our a great deal of our experiences and a great deal of our lives, our family lineages are tied to uh, directly to the enslavement of Africans in this country. And 
every part of our life has been socially controlled, has been monitored, has been surveilled, has been policed by Europeans who who, who legally made themselves white, right? Mm-hmm. And so every aspect that we experience in this country is through their gaze, right? When they when they allowed us to to be in quotes free, when they allowed us to get an education, when they allowed us to be able to work and be able to make a living wage, right? All of these things were the permissions of white people. And although people, white people today like to be like, well, we're not responsible for the things our ancestors did. No one alive, you know, today was responsible for the enslavement of Africans, but that's fundamentally false because they still police us. They still aim to socially control us in every way possible, whether it be the stances in Florida controlling African-American history, whether it be Abbott in Florida, you, I mean, in Texas controlling, you know, everybody's movements, how they can vote, the reproductive rights of, of, of women, right? We see these aspects of social control still existing from white people who are alive and living today. So although they can wrestle with, they didn't enslave people. Actually, you did. You enslave our conditions and you enslave our humanity. Maybe not shackle us, right? But you enslave us in ways that disallows us to have a true free experience and is absolutely, absolutely disrupt us to our peace. This audience knows well, because I say it all the time, that I do not believe that we are living in a democracy. I believe that we are living uh, in, a, in, a, in a nation state that is an experiment in democracy. Uh, yeah. but, but we're not quite there yet. We've got a Madisonian framework, as my friend Connie Rice likes to say, mm-hmm. one of our regular commentators. We've got a Madisonian framework for democracy. But my view is that we are not as yet a democracy. We are at best an experiment in democracy. That's my read. Mm-hmm. Here you come today saying, here, here, come, here you come today saying, Dr. Ingham, that you see us as part of a social experiment of a country. Yeah part of a social experiment of a country, that's slightly different, even though we agree. Unpack that notion of mm-hmm. our being a part yeah. of a social experiment of yeah. a nation state. Absolutely. So one of the things I often say is that, you know, the social experiment that is America, because from the roots and the creation of America, it was indeed a social experiment from the, from the social construction of race to the to the, 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 the social construction of how we look at gender identities and the things that we consider norms. All of these things were created and and we were socialized into believing that these are the ways that we're supposed to act. We are socialized into thinking that manhood looks this way. We were socialized into believing that womanhood looks this way. We were socialized into believing that blackness is inherently evil or that blackness is inherently poor or that blackness is inherently ignorant, right? And that whiteness is the thing that we should all aspire to be, mm-hmm. right? This idea of this American dream, the context of the American dream is aspirational, when really it's truly Eurocentric and the people that we are, whether we be native nations or Africans or Latino, we come from collectivist cultures where we have community and family and we, and we love to nurture and share with each other. But our ideas about this, this idea of like, you know, um, escaping all of that and being solo and doing everything by yourself is Eurocentric. So the social experiment that America was and has come to be is the one that has all of us, focus on chasing this idea um, that has, hasn't for anybody outside of whiteness actually been realized. And even if we look at those of us who are the most wealthy among us, they still, according to, you know, sociologist uh, Max Weber have not achieved prestige, mm-hmm. right? We, we know that you have access to wealth and you have access to things, but to white people, you are still black, right? And so therefore you will never ever 
amount to what they consider to be prestigious. Even if they sip wine with you and break bread with you, they still do not think of you in the same way as they think of their fellow white men and white women. Mm. Some aspects. You, you sort of teed this up. Let me ask you right quick. I've got two minutes before I have to do news, traffic, and sports. Let's let's start this. We'll continue on the other side if we need to. Uh, but since we're talking about this social experiment as you define it, um, I'm not naive in asking this, but I want to ask anyway. Um, what do we know about how this experiment is going? Is it too soon to tell, or can we render a verdict? <laughs> I think that's a fair question, but I think it's a failed social experiment, absolutely. And I mm-hmm. think that it is. it is. It is being run awry um, from the same people that they reference all the time. They just this idea, this context, because America has not yet dealt with the ills of her mistakes, mm-hmm. the, the largest mistake, right, that that America um, committed in her in her early um, adolescence was enslavement. And we decided by we, I don't mean me. I mean these people sure. um, to move to move forward and and to move on and to not actually wrestle with enslavement and what it did to a whole condition of people and this whole condition of of the society we just we decided to just pretend like it never happened and as a result of that we will never absolutely have peace between these these racialized groups these racialized individuals we will never have a fullness of what could have been America. Yeah. Um, you teed something, uh, teed something a moment ago that I want to uh, unpack uh, when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, because we got into this yesterday. If you missed our conversation yesterday with Ebony K. Williams, um, uh, great conversation. Check out the podcast of our conversation with Ebony K. Williams yesterday, lawyer, uh, author, uh, TV personality. She was at Malik Books here in uh, Los Angeles last night for a book signing, I'm told it went went well we had a powerful conversation conversation with her yesterday and we were in that conversation dr ingham talking about the normative white gaze so here you come a day later uh, raising this issue of prestige it seems to me that we're talking about black history uh talking about our journey in this country the goal back in the day was access what king and others were fighting for then was access but I'm glad you use this word prestige. It seems to me in 2023 that Negroes ain't fighting for access no more. We've got that for the most part, for the most part. What Negroes want nowadays is prestige. And I'm not sure that prestige ought to be the goal. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you said it should be. Uh, but I want to interrogate this notion of prestige. That's what so many of us, everybody wants to be a billionaire. Everybody's chasing this notion of prestige. It was about access. Now it's about prestige. What does that mean? And what does that say about our journey and where we have come or not come? So many questions to interrogate around this notion of prestige. We'll get into it when we come forward with Dr. Frederick Ingham Jr. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tabby Smiley. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Frederick Ingram Jr., and this is a rich, rich, rich conversation. I knew it would be. He's assistant professor in the Center for Integrative Studies and Social Science at Michigan State University, the, uh, the Spartans. And uh, we are honored to, um, to have him uh, on this program uh, in this hour talking about uh, black, uh, black, uh, black joy and what it means and uh, what we are to make of it and uh, whether or not we are accessing enough of it in our journey uh, here in America. Uh, there are a number of things he said before news traffic and sports that I want to uh, interrogate and give him a chance to sort of unpack for us uh, a little more deeply. Uh, one is this notion of prestige. You made a powerful point uh, moments ago that I've been wrestling with even through that commercial break. Uh, it seems to me that the goal of our people back in the day, I'm talking now back during the civil rights era and certainly prior to, and you come forward to Jim Crow and Jane Crow and Reconstruction, the goal during that period or those periods uh, was access. 
nobody, you know, particularly cared about sitting on a bus next to white people. And nobody particularly cared about sitting next to white folk at a lunch counter. That was not the point. The point was not proximity to white people. It was about access to do what we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, where and when we decided to do it. It was always about access. In a word, that was the goal of the civil rights movement, equal access. Okay, two words. Uh, here you come now talking about this notion of prestige. And it, it does strike me as fascinating because everywhere I look, you know, when you see these terms, black joy and black love and black magic, oftentimes these are terms that you see, as I said earlier, slogans on T-shirts and beyond. And there are TV shows and award shows and all kinds of celebrities who are advancing this notion of black joy and black magic. But I find that oftentimes we we see uh, these kinds of conversations, these kinds of slogans uh, in or as the domain of those who are who are doing well. Uh, those who are who are the subject, the object of that normative white gaze. And I wonder what you have to say, since you brought the word up, <laughs> about our chasing this notion of prestige. Um, I'm troubled by that on a number of different fronts. I want black folk to do well. As we say around here, we're rooting for everybody black. But there's something mm -hmm. about this chase of prestige that we are engaged in that troubles me. Is it just me? No, it's definitely not just you. It's one of the things that I think for me often often stands out because we definitely want to see people do well. And I want to see black folks do well as long as they are not harming other black folks in the progress of their doing well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we, we see about prestige, we could take this all the way back to look how we view award shows. Like the number of our top celebrities that like refuse to show up for things like the NAACP Image Awards, refuse to show up for the BET Awards, the like. Will, will protest and boycott when they're not featured at the Oscars <laughs> or the Grammys or all these other different places because they don't look, you know, cause they yeah. don't look at our same black award shows as prestigious because those are not the awards run and operated and facilitated by white folk, right? Mm. And because white folk are not stamping them, they don't mean the same thing. We could take it even further and look at the conversations around HBCUs and the experiences of our black players and coaches who were given an opportunity to coach at HBCU, and the moment a white institution came calling, they jumped ship. And then you see people arguing, you know, fighting, pushing back against HBCU alums who are saying, we don't mind that you elevated yourself. We support your elevation. We root for you in doing that, but don't do it on our backs, right? Don't do it in a way that makes us feel that you were waiting for white people to give you permission and give you space to exist in their whiteness, right? And a lot of people don't address that. And when you name it, people get offended. And it's because we have not interrogated why white permission is so important to so many of us. Mm. I want to uh, interrogate in a moment here this notion of black joy and how it can be used as a tool for resistance uh, and empowerment. Before I go there too fast, uh, two other things you said in this conversation. I, I'm just trying to keep up with you, man, and you're moving swiftly, and I am mad at you. I'm just trying to <laughs> make sure I unpack uh, all these jewels that you're dropping in, in this hour. So you talked earlier about the fact that most of us, here we are in Black History Month 2023, and most of us still do not have, as you put it, a foundational understanding uh, of white supremacy in this country. Tell me why you think that's necessary, because it seems to me that if you're black and you're experiencing it, you know when you feel it, <laughs> you, you know when it happens to you. So what difference does it make whether or not you have a foundational understanding of it? Yeah, I teach my students that a lot of people don't have a problem with oppression. They just don't want to be the oppressed. 
Mm-hmm. And when, when we say that, we look at, even look at our own people, right? And we, and we, and we, one of the things we have to do is first do our own interrogation of our relationship with whiteness and white supremacy and what it looks like. For example, you see black folks, we hate racism. We hate that we can't get the job. We hate that we can't get the interview. We hate that we can't be in the space. But when we get in the space, we don't hate the fact that somebody who came in who decided to buck whiteness, right? Um, we don't like when they're there. For example, the the people who decide to press their hair and wear their hair in natural and uh, not natural states. When they see a person who comes in who wears their hair in the afro, who wears their hair in braids, they are immediately offended because you are making us look bad. I think I saw on on Twitter the other day about Nate Burleson who decided to wear his hair in braids and a number of people who were like, that is so amazing. And then the number of people, brothers and white folk who were saying like, why your hair in braids? You, you at a level, you got to represent us. And it's, it's like making us believe that our blackness requires permission to exist in white spaces. And we do that because we constantly are looking for this permission to be able to exist. And so whenever any of us decide to push back against that, People are people don't know what to do, right? It's an affront to all of the things that we have earned, all of the things that we have been trying to get ourselves in a respectable mm-hmm. blackness. And when you are not respectably black, it's like, oh my God, I cannot believe they gave you that space. Oh my God, I cannot believe you went on TV like that, or I can't <laughs> believe you stepped into the office in that in that particular kind of way. And so I know I get on a lot of people's nerves because I'm like, I don't do respectability. I don't care about it, right? Um, and I definitely don't care about appeasing white people and i know it's different right for yeah. for you know you know academics particularly millennial academics people are like what do you mean by that i'm like because i know who i am and like the academy didn't make me i made my you know i and my people are who made me who i am so the academy can't take that from me but that's a freedom in that understanding where my relationship is with whiteness and how i can decide to not give those parts of my blackness away. But a lot of us haven't done that. So foundationally, many of us don't understand. So like, for example, like we hate racism, but we don't, we don't dislike homophobia. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. We, we hate racism, but we don't have a problem with colorism or, or texturism or xenophobia. We pick and choose the parts of oppression that we are objectively okay with and the parts of it that directly affect us or directly affect the people that we care about. We just don't. Mm. No, you're preaching, brother. I, I'm just sitting here quiet because <laughs> you are you breaking this thing down. Um, we, you, you'd fit in quite nicely here at KBLA Talk 1580 because we call ourselves unapologetically black, black, not respectably yes, black. We are unapologetically black, not respectably black. And so you'd fit in quite nicely around here. Um, you mentioned Nate Broderson. I saw that story. So I'm glad you raised it. It seems to me, uh, again, something else you raised in this hour. You raised this notion of being intentional, how black folk have to be intentional. Nate Broderson in that decision was being quite intentional. Sometimes there is a price to pay for being intentional, uh, for being unapologetically black. Is there not? It is. And you have to, you have to choose that for yourself. I think one of the parts of understanding the relationship with, with whiteness and white supremacy is also choosing that it comes with losses, right? Mm-hmm. Deciding not to step into the academy in a particular kind of way could absolutely cost me. Deciding to wear your hair and braids at the, you know, at this big fancy job that the white people gave you, right? Could could absolutely cost you. Deciding to be right unapologetically progressive can cost you because everybody wants us to acquiesce and bend the knee to whiteness. And one of the things I talk about, particularly in the higher ed space, is this performance 
of diversity, equity, and inclusion instead mm-hmm. of the actual praxis mm-hmm. of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so many of us get distracted by the performance of these things without the actual application, right, and intentionality of it. For me, yeah. I don't care about, you know, being the first. I've made history, and you know, and I'm not even 40 yet. I've done those things, but none of that meant anything for me when I arrived in those spaces and the support wasn't there. The community that I needed to be successful and to make those those changes and those implementations was not there and or they were not ready for me because they expected me to come in and, and tuck my head and tuck my chin and not not know that I stand on the shoulders of so many black people and so many giants and so many of my ancestors. So tucking my head for white people was just not an option for me. Yep. No, I couldn't agree more um, with your notion that praxis. Uh, matters a great deal more to me than performance. Uh, praxis matters more than performance. I take your point loud and clear. A lot of wisdom here. This is wisdom speaking for a brother who's not even 40 yet, a professor not even 40 yet at Michigan State. It's a lot of wisdom speaking. Uh, and uh, I'm taking it in as I hope you are. More when we come forward, specifically how black joy um, to Listen to uh, Dr. Frederick Ingram Jr. on KBLA Talk 1580. Um, looking at my clock here, about four minutes left in this conversation, Dr. Ingram. Um, let me try to uh, get you to project out, if you will. Listen to uh, Dr. Frederick Ingram Jr. on KBLA Talk 1580. Um, looking at my clock here, about four minutes left in this conversation, Dr. Ingram. Um, let me try to uh, get you to project out, if you will. Where we are headed, um, coming back to that beautiful phrase you uh, uh, laid out earlier, where we're headed on this journey to black joy. Are we headed in the right direction? I could, uh, if I had the time uh, to play devil's advocate, as it were, I could run a long litany of things, as you well know, uh, that would seem to suggest uh, to, uh, to suggest that our journey to uh, to joy, to black joy, is going to be fraught with all kind of difficulties and trouble and travail. Uh, I don't need to do that because you teach this stuff every single day. But just give me your assessment of where we are writ large uh, in our journey to find black joy. I, I agree with you. I definitely think that it is it is a, it is a tumultuous uh, journey, and it's one and it's one that is both affirming and positive in some ways, and other ways it's like, bro, what are we doing? And I believe that there are quite a few of us who are recognizing and understanding and are getting to the place of growth and development and understanding this. Mm-hmm. But there are so many of us who just really do not understand, again, where we are and why we're in these particular situations. Um, I often have people ask me, you know, um, or, or project, you know, about some of the atrocities that we experience as being the fault of our own. And every time I hear that, I realize, like, you don't understand white supremacy. But I think once we have that foundational understanding, that core understanding, I think that we will be able to move faster and move forward and progressively as a people. There are a lot of us who are moving, who get it and who understand. I watch it in my classrooms as I lecture every day. Um, But there are so many of us that I just wish that peace for. I wish that the opportunity for them to start their journey so they can understand. Yeah. Uh, Finally, tell me about your forthcoming text that I mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Uh, Black Liberation Through Action and Resistance is a millennial guide to understanding um, the movements of our time. Each of the chapters in the book is named after a song of liberation, so like a soundtrack, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and move is like a double entendre where it's like move as in like get up and move, do something, social justice and action movements, but also move to the music. Listen to the songs of liberation, listen to our people, the Sam Cooks, the Beyonce's, and et cetera, um, that told us how to 
uh, find our voices and, and to uh, be able to understand black liberation. Yep. You think today's music is still pregnant with that kind of power? Uh, absolutely. I think I, I, people don't like some, some people don't like Rihanna's new song. I love it. Right. If you <laughs> listen to the words of it and the, and the feeling that it gives you, the, the, the music is that artists are still writing. They're super talented. You just got to find the right people. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't heard the new track as yet. Uh, I do know uh, that she killed it at the Super Bowl because I saw the numbers yesterday. <laughs> and yes. she now has uh, the second most watched halftime performance of any artist ever. I mean, so she's beat out Prince. She beat out Michael Jackson. She beat out uh, everybody except Katy Perry. So those are the numbers that she has the second most watched halftime performance ever. Uh, only second to, uh, to Katy Perry. What that means, I do not know. But I'm going to digress on that point. Anyway, she had she had a she had a fine performance on Sunday, and people are talking about it and celebrating it. And I ain't mad at Rihanna with baby number two on the way, her and ASAP Rocky. Uh, in any event, Dr. Frederick Ingram Jr. Uh, is an assistant professor in the Center for Integrative Studies and Social Science at Michigan State University. We look forward to having him back when his text finally comes out. Uh, but until then, Dr. Ingram, thank you for this uh, very spirited and very insightful conversation. I enjoyed it immensely, as I'm sure the audience did as well. Thank you for your time, sir. All the best to you. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sending some more black joy your way right about now. Appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sir. Hour two of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.